Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 136 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, John McGarry, otherwise known as McGee, let me remind you about everything that's available in the shop at mistresscarry.com. If you're planning on hitting a concert at some point in the near future, bag restrictions are pretty strict, but you can get a Mistress Carrie concert approved bag. It's clear plastic and can be worn around the waist or crossbody. There's also the 7-in-1 bartender tool, fitted caps, trucker hats, new visors, plus t-shirts, hoodies, beanies, coffee mugs, pint glasses, and so much more. Just log on to mistresscarry.com and check out the shop. I've always said the Mistress Carrie podcast is a rock lifestyle podcast. So it's not all about just interviewing the bands you love. It's also about talking to the people that help make the music possible, whether it's in the studio or at a live concert. And my guest this week, John McGarry, otherwise known as McGee in drum circles, is a professional drum tech who's been doing it for over 27 years. And he's worked with some of our favorite bands, like Aerosmith, Seven Dust, Hoobastank, Stone Temple Pilots, Styx, Extreme, Stained, and worked with artists like Steve Vai, Sammy Hagar, David Lee Roth, Ringo Starr, Josh Groban, and more. I've known McGee a really long time, and I thought it'd be really interesting for you to hear from someone that spends his nights sitting behind the drummer. One of the people that's always dressed in black backstage at the shows to make sure that your favorite band's concert goes off without a hitch. So if you've ever wondered about the show going on within the show, there's nobody better to ask than McGee. We talked about touring and drumsticks, the styles of different drummers, how he got into it in the first place, how everyone that's ever toured has had a spinal tap moment, what it's like living on a tour bus, what your favorite drummers are like when they're not on stage, and so much more. And McGee has a completely unique take on what it's like to be out on the road. So. Allow me to introduce you to John McGarry, otherwise known as McGee. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely... Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your bra on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stain, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to, you have the privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. What's up, McGee? Hello, Carrie. Thanks for coming. Welcome to MCHQ. Uh, thank you for having me. I love it here. It's cool, right? It is. For all you listeners, I just got a tour, so it's a very rad place here. This is uh, the 
culmination of two and a half years of being locked inside because of the pandemic. Yeah, well, with all that time, you did an amazing job. Thank you. Um, For anybody that doesn't know who you are, I tried to remember when I met you the first time because we've known each other a long time. Yeah. I can't remember when we met. Can you remember? Uh, Yeah, it would be uh, 1999. I was out with Seven Dust on the Warp Tour. That's when we met? Yep, I did Morgan for uh, the summer. That was out at the Northampton Airport, right? Yeah. Yep, I remember. Damn. Yeah, it's been a while. It's one of those things that, like, I feel like I've always known you, and I really did rack my brain to try and figure out how it is that I met you. So I'm psyched that you remembered. Yeah, as, as I get older, my memory kind of wanes, but I do remember that. So for um, for anybody that um, listens to the podcast, I always call this a rock lifestyle podcast. And that it's all about all of the things that encompass rock music and the lifestyle around it. So it's not just bands. Um, And I interviewed a mutual friend of ours, Frank Scambalone, on the show. Yeah, Frank is a legend. (laughs) And he was like, "What? Why do people want to hear me talk? Like they want to hear from the bands." And the way I explained it to him was like, "Look." We're all, anybody that listens to this show is a lover of music, right? We're a lover of bands, live concerts, all of that. You guys have these jobs that unless you kind of work in the industry, you know they exist, but you don't really understand what you do, why they need you, and kind of what goes into making the end show that we all in the audience get to watch every night. And I get, so is your technical term a drum tech? Is that your job description? Uh, yeah, mostly I've been a drum tech my whole life. You know, used to be a drum roadie, but we got upgraded to technicians somewhere along the line. Yeah, the, the word roadie kind of went by the wayside, which is when I tell people what I used to do before I was on the radio, I tell them I was a roadie because I... That career ended for me in 1998 when radio became my full-time job. But for a few years, I was out on the road and, you Yeah, know. and a, a lot of people confuse roadie with groupie. Right. <laughs> they do. Especially when you're a girl tech. <laughs> yes, exactly. And they're trying to figure out what it is that you do. And you're like, well, I don't have a Leatherman and a sea wrench in my back pocket for no reason, bud. I'm definitely <laughs> not here to service the band. <laughs> That's true. You know, I haven't showered in three days. I've got no makeup on. My hair's in a ponytail. <laughs> I'm wearing work boots. I'm definitely not here for the after show shenanigans. No, and, and I think just a, a lot of people in general think, they don't really think what goes into getting a show up every day. Well, that's why I wanted to be able to have these conversations on the show because I think for music lovers, um, they're interested. Not only that, but because I used to do that kind of work, um, the bands can't do it without you. So it's a very symbiotic relationship where you can't have a job without the bands, but the bands can't have a show without you. Yeah, and uh, someone had a quote years ago that said, Bands make it rock, roadies make it roll. Yeah, see, there you go. Exactly. So I I love the idea of being able to sit down and kind of talk about the, the behind-the-scenes working of shows and kind of working with the bands that we love because I also know that the roadies have the best stories. Because while some of you guys are kind of tenured with artists 
and the artists, even when they're not on the road, kind of keep you on retainer so they don't lose you. A lot of techs hop from project to project so that they can continue to work. So you could be working with a country act one day and a rock act the next day and then working with a jazz act. Like for you, anybody that's playing the drums is fair game. Yeah, that's true. Uh, although I've I've never done a country act. They they tend to use a lot of people out of Nashville. Yeah. You know, kind of a couple techs to do the whole stage. Yeah. You know, I primarily just do drums. Although in my career, I've also been a carpenter. Uh, you know, I've done stage manager, small stuff out there. I was a personal assistant to uh, Mr. Steven Tyler for a mm. while. That lasted about six months. <laughs> And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, rock, the, it comes up on the show a lot that rock music is invading Nashville. It seems like more and more rock bands are moving there too. So I think eventually, you know, Nashville's going to run out of techs. The country guys might have to start outsourcing stuff because there's a lot of rock music getting made down there. Yeah, that's true. And also for a lot of years now, though, a country act is more like a rock pop show anyway. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I mean they're huge. They, they're selling out arenas everywhere. People, I don't know their music personally. I'm a, an old school guy. You know, I grew up in the 70s, you know, so I like, I tend to kind of like 70s music, 80s rock, you know, yeah. 90s stuff. Just depends on the mood. Um, So can we go back and kind of talk about the, the, the start for you in your career? So first of all, we all call you McGee, but... What's your real name? Well, that's it. I had it legally changed. <laughs> no. no, my my name is John. And a lot of bands I work for don't even know my real name. That's why I asked you, because I know that a lot of our mutual friends and people that you've worked with are probably going to hear this and they're going to be like, that's what McGee's real name is. Oh, yeah. It's kind of good that way. <laughs> but you... um. You're a, a New England guy, born and raised in Mass, right? Yeah, and I grew up in a town called Rockland, of all places. So <laughs> uh, my start kind of came, well, our mutual friend Dana Spellman, he's yep. my best friend. I met him in 89 while I was doing construction. And he had a local band drummer, and I always liked the drums since I was a kid, uh, since I, I saw Kiss in the 70s on, on TV. You know? what, what kid that saw Kiss in the 70s wasn't inspired to do something? Oh, yeah. And I was just drawn to the drums. You know, Peter was kind of like... He was always me, my favorite guy, was too. the best. And, yeah. and, you know, fast forward, I got to become good friends with Peter, still, uh, from a tour we did, Aerosmith and Kiss. So, uh, but, I don't know, going back. So, Dana had a local band. I started, uh, he invited me to a show. I helped him carry the drums in, and I had a van, so... Ah, friend with a van! Oh, yeah, so my rusty old Chevy... Kind of became the the roadie van. We, we'd load it up, you know. They rehearsed in Brockton, Mass, and so I did that. You know, that was my lifestyle for three years. I had hair back then. I'm, <laughs> you listen as I'm bald right now, but but I had curly locks and long hair, and and I just enjoyed doing that. You know, it just became, you know, you're hanging out with your best friends, doing going to shows and just having fun. So you didn't grow up a musician, and you didn't grow up a drummer. No, no. Ask any of the uh, fellow techs I tour with. I am not a great drummer. Because <laughs> normally, and it happens a lot with guitar players, and we've all seen it happen, James Hetfield, that um, the the drummer, the guitar player, the bass player gets injured, and the roadie kind of steps in. 
Yeah, and 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 I missed an opportunity on that a few years ago because of my lack of playing on Aerosmith when uh, Joey had got hurt one night and he couldn't perform for a while. And they had a show that morning, the next day. And, you know, in, in my head, I know every nuance of every Aerosmith song. I bet. I, I can air drum it in my mind. <laughs> I just physically can't play it. Right. And, you know, I could have stepped up if I knew how to play, but it just didn't work out. Drummers' brains are different. And I say that because of our mutual friend, Mike Mangini, who was gracious enough during the real height of the pandemic to come on the show. And he hooked cameras up. You've seen his rig. And he had the drum set in the house, had all the cameras. And he tried to the best of his ability, and you know Mangini well. Getting into the Mangini brain is a thing. There's a lot going on in there. Yeah, I usually stay clear of it. And I tried to get him to describe to me what is going on in his head while he's playing these complex dream theater drum parts. A drummer's brain, I think much like a helicopter pilot's brain, has to be able to compartmentalize and be able to do four different things with four different appendages at the same time. There's a certain thing with music that you can learn, and there's a certain thing with music that's just inherent as an ability that I believe you're born with. I find it really difficult if you don't have the ability to learn the ability. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with you on that. Because you've been immersed with drummers for decades, and if you can't play the drums, that kind of proves my theory. Well, I, I can play, I can keep time, you know, play beats and stuff, but... Like, I could never go out and do a, a show unless they played the same song, you know, 14 <laughs> times that night, four on the floor, you know. Don't let me do any drum fills. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that I am in awe of growing up in the marching band in school like a lot of us did. Like, I just don't understand it, but I love it so much. It's the same thing that I talk about with songwriting. I'm so envious of the, abil of the ability, but I just can't do it myself. Yeah, yeah, and, and neither can I. But uh, one thing about being, you know, I'm on stage every night. You know, I sit behind the drummers, and every downbeat of every song or every intro, I still get goosebumps. You yeah. Know, I'm, I'm going on my 27th year now of being on the road. But uh, to kind of backtrack a little bit, when, you know, I, when I was working for Dana locally, you know, and then I said, I got to get out of construction. I went to an art school in Fort Lauderdale for a couple of years just to get away from everything. And I came back, couldn't find a job. And during that time, he had moved in with Mangini and, <laughs> and had been taking drum lessons off him. And uh, so Mike had got the gig with Steve Vai, and he needed a drum kit driven out to Rochester, New York, to play with an orchestra. And uh, so Dana recommended me. So I had never uh, met Mike at that point. So I, I loaded up a kit for him from his storage, and he, he always laughs at this, but he had baby seats in there. I'm just saying that because it's an inside joke. <laughs> he had car seats, even though he didn't have kids. <laughs> but uh, so I drove it out there and I worked, you know, with everybody for a week. And uh, I think my humor actually helped get me the gig with, uh, with you know, Steve's tech. You know, I cracked him up a few times and, yeah. I, and I worked hard. And he says, I don't know if you can tune a drum, but... We're going on a world tour in two months, and we need somebody to set up drums and keyboards. Would you be interested? And I said, yeah, sure, man. I'll try anything, you know? <laughs> so 
So, you know, a few months later, emerged, uh, we did a 21-country world tour, and I kind of cut my teeth on it. Wow. It, well, first of all, <clears throat> what did you study in art school? Uh, industrial design. I was a worried, there was only about nine of us in the class. I was, I was like 23, all the other guys were 18. They were all better artists than me. But I did the work. You know, yeah. I, I was paying for it myself. And, you know, I was, be, I was a bouncer and a barback till like three in the morning. Then I had to get up at six oh. to go to school. And I showed up, you know, that's my, as you see, I showed up 40 minutes early today. Yeah. So you text yeah. me, right? And you're like, <laughs> hey, I'll see you at noon. I'm like, okay, cool. Then you text me and you're like, well, I left a little early. Um, can I come over now? And I'm like, yeah, but I need to go put pants on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was always, it was always instilled to me. You know, if, if you're uh, 10 minutes early, you're 30 minutes late. Yeah, you would have been so, great in the military. Yeah, I would have been. The, the, the sense of humor and the promptness are two things that are required for success in the military and a lot of other uh, professions as well. But Yeah, I guess, yeah, when you, when you get that stuff instilled in you, you know, yeah. you just grow up like that. I'm perpetually five minutes late for everything. Well, that's It just right. always happens. As long as you get there, uh, at least within five but I'll, minutes. But I'll stay two hours late to make sure the job gets done right. So when I was out on the road, it was the same kind of thing where it was like, you know, getting there on time, okay. But but the work ethic, that the things that you're talking about, whether it be me working in radio, me working as a tech, I think those are skills, being able to work with people, being able to be flexible, being able to laugh in the worst of times, embracing the shit and to admit when you don't know something and to be willing to learn new things, those are skills that make you incredibly successful in the music business, but skills that I feel like make you incredibly successful doing anything. Yeah. I mean, that kind of describes my character Yeah, to a, to a T pretty much. Well, which know? is why we've known each other for what, 24 years now? Yeah. This year? Coming, coming up on that. <laughs> Which is crazy. Oh, that was a rough summer, too, with those guys, because they were, they were partying pretty hard. Seven Dust? Oh, 24 Seven Dust back in 1999. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, and, and that Warp Tour was horrible, because you never knew when you were going to play. Right. So you'd, you'd find out at 10 in the morning, all right, Seven Dust is going on at 1230 today on the B stage. Yeah. And you had to get set up and... Every night, old Clint would want to wrestle me in the uh, front lounge with a, a lit cigarette in his mouth. He would burn like three or four of my shirts. <laughs> so when you take that famous trip to upstate New York, pack up the drums for Mangini, spend a week out there, and then get offered a job by Steve Vai to go on a world tour, there's got to come a realization with you where you're like, okay, they know that I don't have a lot of experience but I make them laugh and I work really hard. But you still got to do the job, right? The expectation is that if you accept the job, you got to be able to do the job. So they say, okay, we're leaving on the tour in two months. What did you do for those two months to learn how to do that job, to get ready to go out on that Vi tour? You know, like I said, I don't have the greatest memory, but I don't think I really did anything. I probably... <laughs> I, you know, I was probably nervous leading yeah. up to it, wondering, you know, how am I going to do this stuff? And we call it learn while you earn. Yeah. And, you know, I flew out to California for the first time and I stayed at one of Steve I's houses where his studio was, you know, it was up on a second floor. So we just had to, we had to carry everything up a flight of stairs into the small studio. 
you know, rehearsed for a while. And it just, you know, I was taught by other roadies, you know, you should do this, you know, we don't do that really. And just use your instinct, you know, and I'm always willing to help, you know, lift something or load a truck, Yeah, you know, and it's helped me through the years, you know, people want to work with somebody like that, not the guy who's getting loaded or doing drugs. Which, or saying that's not my job. Oh yeah. You run into that a lot. I'm, yeah. I'm not touching that. That's probably why my back is horrible right now. But, <laughs> but I was never a roadie that partied much on the road. Yeah. Japan, I would let loose a little bit. <laughs> I'd like to drink a little bit. I've never done drugs in my life. And no, no, you're not yeah. even a coffee drinker. I tried to offer you coffee, which no. which I should have a tap run down here to MCHQ because <laughs> I sip on coffee all day. Well, I was saving my cup for you. You can have two cups. <laughs> yeah, I just never, I tried it as a kid, didn't like it. When you get offered this gig, right? You grow up a, a rock music fan, a construction worker from Rockland. This is Steve Vai. Oh, yeah, it's pretty... Uh... Like... There, I, it's very unprofessional when you're a professional tech like you are to get giddy over musicians and fame and all of that stuff because it's part of the gig. But your first gig, working for Steve Vai, when you're a rock fan, one minute you're a construction worker that's going to art school, and the next minute you're at Steve Vai's house humping his gear around... Yeah, it's it's quite an insane turnaround when you think about it. What year was this? That was 96, wow. 1996. So, so Vi was very well known, had already done his stint with David Lee Roth at the time. Yeah. Like my Steve Vi thing is like high school for me. We drove around in my friend's hot rods and listened to Flexible on cassette and smoked pot. That's oh, yeah. like when I think of Steve Vi... That's what I think of is like the audience is listening and the crazy yeah. videos. But to me, Steve Vai Flexible is like, you know, I'm one of those music people that attributes memories to what I was listening to at the time. Yeah. And Steve Vai Flexible is one of the soundtracks of like my high school of years. I, I love that album. It's so friggin' weird, but so good. It is. He, he I mean... I would just sit there and be in awe of what he could do on a guitar. Yeah. I mean, it's mind-blowing, you know? Because not having much musical ability, I know what it what it takes to get to that level. Yeah. So, you know? Like, I know who a good drummer is and who isn't. I know who a good guitar player, singer is, you know? Just from being around it so much. Yeah. It's but, people tell me that I have a good ear for good songs. Because that's always been part of my job, especially programming radio stations, that you've got to listen to a lot of music and be able to say like, oh, this is this is a good song. This is going to be successful. But I can't write songs. I can't play them. But I guess if you're immersed in it enough, it just kind of becomes this osmosis kind of thing where you, you pick it up. Yeah, I think it just kind of sinks in, you know, and, and you have the ability. I mean, not uh, songs... Everything's so different. Not, like, I don't listen to modern radio much. I mean, I have Sirius Satellite, so I listen to my, the bridge, you know, sounds of the 70s. I, I love, <laughs> I mean, sing a songwriter. Me and Sharon go back on that stuff all the time. Yeah. Who's our favorites. And so I like that stuff, but I also like the hard rock of the 80s. Yeah. You know, Van Halen, Priest, you know. All, Maiden. Yeah, Maiden, Queen, you know. Yep. The Beatles. I mean, 
Preach. Yeah, anybody that doesn't like the Beatles is insane. I just watched the Abbey Road documentary that Mary McCartney did. Have you seen that yet? No, I, I, I'm two episodes into the one that came out earlier this year. Oh, okay. Uh, I haven't seen that one. So Mary McCartney made a documentary. It's a film. It's not a series about Abbey Road Studios and the history of the studio because she spent so much of her life there because of the time, obviously, with their dad and the Beatles and then obviously with Wings, and he still works in that studio. And it tells the story of how the studio got built, the different phases of musical history, um, how it was really hurting uh, in the 70s and how John Williams and film scoring kind of brought it back and all oh, the music yeah. that's been made there and why it's still such a popular studio for people to record in because of how it sounds. It's a fascinating documentary if you're looking to watch it, but it's called If These Walls Could Sing. It's on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. But I've been nerding out on all the Beatles stuff too. Oh, it's, it's insane. The Rick Rubin series is great. Yeah. Um, obviously the Peter Jackson series, which I think is the one you're talking about, right? Yeah. Where you're like watching Paul McCartney, right? Get back like in the moment. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nuts. And it's like reading a book that you've already read or watching a movie that you know how it ends. It's like, you know how the song ends up, you know what it sounds like. And you're hearing him work through the parts and you're like, oh my God, like having documentation of how an artist, a master of the craft, like McCartney wrote songs oh yeah and people forget how young they were too. Oh, you it's, know nowadays it's, it's like you look at someone that age nowadays compared to then they were and, broken up by 30 i know and they yeah. wrote all that music in their 20s yeah it's it's mind mind numbing to think about yeah but like, it always comes up on the show i'm glad that you're in the beatles camp oh yeah you have to be if people not, that don't like the beatles i wouldn't let people that don't like the Beatles around me or my animals. <laughs> Those people aren't right in the head. <laughs> so when when you start going out on this tour, right, you're out with Vi, you're traveling the world, the kid from Rockland that maybe had gone on a trip or two, but had not traveled the world at this point. Yeah, at that point, I, I went to, at 16, I went on a cruise to Mexico. <laughs> that, that, that was it. I'd never... Well, I went to Canada. Yeah. I was 18 for Thanksgiving weekend. And I got mugged. <laughs> Canadians are supposed to be so nice. Well, I was a, a bit inebriated. So <laughs> I, I don't know what I said, but. So when you start touring, getting thrust into the touring world is is a steep learning curve. Especially when you're learning by earning, right? Like you yeah. said, because you're surrounded by people that do this for a living and you're the slow guy. Yeah, exactly. And I had, Mike had a big drum kit, you know, to set up. And, you know, I would help mic it and wire it and stuff and put on the microphones and all that stuff. And so you, your day consists of a lot of little, little stuff, you know. Yeah. I, you kind of, I always say I, I get inside the drummer's head really well uh, when you watch them, what they want, what they're going to want during the show, if it's certain drinks. Where do they want their set list? I want a towel here. Uh, that right symbol, you know, I want the felt on that loose, you know, so that symbol flops a little more. This one tight, you know, and it's just anything you can think of that can go wrong, too. You want to have a backup plan. Like, like most of the time, a drum kit will stay together. Uh, but, you know, you want to prepare, have an extra snare drum, extra pedals, you know, maybe some extra cymbals. 
Morgan Rose used to d- destroy symbols. Well, Morgan. I mean, he he killed him. We had, when we did Woodstock '99, uh, he broke three symbols in like twenty minutes. <laughs> you know, he just just shattered him. I heard somebody describe, and it might have been Morgan actually talking about what his chiropractor said, that basically, especially back in the heyday, that he was going through a car accident every night playing a set with Seven Dust behind the drums. Oh yeah, and and his. I used to have to massage his forearms before he went on. And his forearm looked like an average person's calf. Yeah. The muscle. And it was like trying to knead concrete. Yeah. You know, and he was just, yeah, he's beat himself up playing that instrument. But he's very unique and fun to watch. 100%. Great, great, great drummer. Horrible at returning text messages. <laughs> but great, great drummer. I had him on the show, too. And we actually got into a very long personal conversation about... About the ups and downs of a, a music career, you know the the broken relationships, trying to raise a family, uh, health struggles, obviously managing the egos in a band, the pressure of songwriting, uh, making poor decisions with record labels and managers and agents. It's once you go from your garage, right? Once you go from humping your friend Dana's gear in your rusty Chevy van. Yeah. And you get a record deal and you become a band and you get into this machine. It gets so much more complicated so quickly. And trying to strip it back to the basics, to to be able to have that group of people around you that you know you can trust, to be able to get into whatever headspace you need to be able to write music and to be able to manage your money, not overindulge with booze and drugs, to not get yourself in legal trouble. I mean, it's a hard road to navigate the, this kind of career. Yeah, you, you're 100% right. And uh, that's why a lot of people, I see a lot of roadies that fail at all that stuff, but they keep working yeah. too, which makes me think, well, you know, I've seen that guy do some stupid stuff, you know, <laughs> but I don't know. I just I just try to keep my head on my shoulders. And, and as a tech we're that person's right-hand man. Right. You know, it, it's like you're not only a technician, sometimes you're a therapist. You know, they there's, a, there's always lots of infighting in bands. Most bands I've ever been involved in, except one, when I toured with Hoobastank for a little while, those guys just seem to have their stuff together. They, I didn't see any fighting. They'd all share one room, smaller than this, hook up a PlayStation and play, you know, video games till they went on and, but with a lot of big bands, you know, there's always something going on. Especially if you've been doing it a long time. Yeah. And you know, you work a lot with Aerosmith. They, you know, they've been a band for 52 years. It's like after a while. Yeah. And I was lucky to get that break. You know, I after I had done the Vitor, the very next day, I got called. And, and two days later, I went out and did a year with Dream Theater. So my first two tours were these big drum kits, two well-known mics drumming you know and yeah because this was obviously portnoy's era with dream theater yeah, before yeah. mangini joined dream theater yeah yeah it might be in the original right drummer and you know and i did that for a year that was tough and then uh you got thrown into it i did two I, of the most prolific technical yeah. highly esteemed drummers in all of drumming yep and, and and they were your first two gigs yeah and that's why my hair fell out <laughs> <laughs> No, they yeah they they were tough gigs and you know and then after 
you know, after that, there was one more Vi tour I did. You know, we did we did a tour, and then I did the Seven Dust, and what I call my big break, which has been my favorite band I worked for. I uh, got called to do Stone Temple Pilots in early two thousand, and so I spent you know two thousand till the end of o two with them when they had their break, but their music to me, I mean, I love those guys. Yeah, it, it, all their albums, their songwriting, because Robert and Dean, they grew up listening to the same stuff I did all the seventies stuff. So, and you can see that and hear it in their music, you know? So I had Dean on the show and we talked a lot about, you know, there, there's examples of brothers in rock and roll, right? Sometimes it goes well, um, you know, in a case like Oasis yeah. and, and the black crows for a bit, it, it didn't it, go well. It doesn't go well. Um, but the idea of being, being in a band with your brother when you talk about managing the egos, navigating success, I would think that on the positive side, you can always trust that person because it it goes beyond the band, that it's family. Yeah, you you, you would assume that family has each other's back. Right. Wants but if it goes wrong, because I think anybody can attest that they've had a problem with a family member. Oh, yeah. And now you can't get away from this person because your entire livelihood is wrapped up in them. Yeah, and that's that's got to be like walking into hell every day. You know, <laughs> exactly. it is. You know, it's. If I had to be in a band with half my family, the band would have broken up a long time ago. Yeah, you would have been like the Partridge family. <laughs> Everybody needs Reuben Kincaid, though. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So, when you go from setting up these highly technical drum sets for people like Mangini, Portnoy, you're going out on these world tours. For somebody that doesn't understand, and you've alluded to it a little bit, but I want to go and I want to and I want to start from the beginning and explain to people that don't understand. And I asked Frank Scambalone the same the same kind of question. Doors for us are at six. Music starts at seven. Curfews eleven. Shows over. We sit in traffic. Go home. Get up and go to work the next day. Yeah, that is not your time schedule at all no and and well there's a lot of people that have it worse off like like being a, um an instrument tech we're called backline uh a lot of people call us back wine because <laughs> there might be some complaining but you come in you know you're not the first person in right you, know, you gotta they come in they mock out the floor they're bringing in sound lights and so let's uh, let's do that let's go through right. the timeline of a load-in so that people kind of understand because I, I did this with Frank a little bit too. So, what time do the trucks roll into the dock? Well, that depends on the tour. Okay. So, so if you have, I think the biggest tour I've been on was like twenty-two trucks, <sighs> Aerosmith Kiss. So you're loading in. Sometimes you're pre-rigging the day before. Okay. You know, people have to go in and hang all the points. You know, for these massive light trusses. Sound. So somebody goes in and takes chalk and marks the floor. Yeah, they mark up. And and right above those marks is where they're going to hang the chain the, motors. The motors, yep. That are going to hold the trussing, yeah. which holds the lights and the banners and the props yep. and sometimes the pyro and the projection screens and, and the, the LED screens yep. and the PA. So when you go into a show, the next time you go into a concert and you walk in, look up and look at what everything is being held by. And if you look really closely, you're going to see steel cables 
with burlap sacks over I-beams yeah. and all these little chain motors and the chains coming down holding all of that stuff. So for anybody that just is not exposed to any of this at all, I encourage you to look at the part of the show that it's like watching a magician. Yeah. You know, there's the flashbang of what they want you to look at and then there's what's really going on. So don't look at the production and the shiny lights. Look at the dirty part up in the ceiling. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, because when you're not in there, that's a pretty empty ceiling up there. Right. It's pretty much just grid and metal. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. I spend a lot of time looking up. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, most, I'm pretty trained. I watch the drummer, you know. Right. Like a hawk. Pretty good. But there's times if you have moving components above you, like on, on the Aerosmith Vegas thing, we had this giant A that came down floating over the drums, you know, and and it's right above you as it's coming down and you're kind of looking up and hope those riggers weren't hung over. Yeah, I have my morbid thoughts. I'm, you know, I'm like, <laughs> well, what if this thing comes down? Am I, is it going to hit me? Am I going to be able to pull him out? You know, yep. and you think about that stuff. Yeah. Because it's happened. There's been accidents. There's yeah. been stage collapses. You know, a friend of mine, um, Aiden was, he was on the uh, Metallica bus crash in Europe. Oh, wow. And he was trapped. He, him and Cliff. Wow. I mean, it's scary, you know, you think about that. I've been in some minor bus accidents. You know, I've seen a tire come off a truck and just miss, it was bouncing towards us, being in the jump seat, and it just missed coming through the windshield and hit right above the driver. But if it was two feet lower. It would have gone right through the windshield. We'd be, yeah, and probably wouldn't be here because yeah. it would have killed the driver. And Yeah, it's not like a, it's not like the tire off a Toyota. No. A he, semi tire is yeah, steel no. radials, heavy, big, and moving fast. Yeah, you, you don't realize it. And, and you know, I've, I've got stuck in mountains in Vancouver in the snow and on, on tours. Um, you know, we've been locked out of a bus. It malfunctioned. We had to, <laughs> we had to send the skinniest guy through the driver window <laughs> after we broke it. But that's one job, yeah, they wouldn't have volunteered me for. I wouldn't fit. <laughs> so those so those trucks roll in. Yeah, they roll in. But, I mean, you could be dumping as early as 6 a.m. sometimes. You know, average tour, I would say, would probably start dumping at 7, 38. You know, they, they would get up, mark the floor, start dumping the trucks. If it is a big tour, sometimes they'll build a stage. You have a rolling stage. So you'll be on one end of the arena um, while they're building the lights and sound down the other end. So you're able to get all the band gear forked up onto the deck and you can stop building in place. And then it's pretty cool to see they get all the local help. You know, when you're ready to push down, everybody gets on. Reminds me of like how they built the pyramids. You got like 40 people pushing this stage full of band gear down under into the light, you know, under the correct spot. But that keeps you working. I, w I, I would say the average time we would start setting up those like 10. 10 a.m. on backline. Yep. Uh, but this tour is like I did Josh Groban a lot, and we'd be in earlier than that, you know, because we had to be up and re ready for a full uh, run through with a local orchestra at two o'clock, you know, because it, it's. He's not touring with an orchestra, so he was. Yeah. Every place he went, he had a local orchestra come in, so you got to rehearse every day with new people. Yeah, so that's the musical director, you know, and they had to, they had to do. It's a, that's a busy tour to yeah. be on. I mean. But again, that's something totally different from a rock tour that I've done that I enjoyed because Josh is, a, you know, a lot of people just don't know him. He's a funny guy and his music 
it's different and it's nice and quiet. You could have a He's con- a lot more of a rock guy than I think people realize. Yeah, he is. And he's he likes he's got the same humor I do. You know, I had the, the first show I was doing with him, uh he says, I hear you're the funny guy. <laughs> he goes, Tell me a joke. And I go, Well, I go, listen, the ones I know aren't appropriate. <laughs> so I told him this pretty sick joke and he doubles over laughing and he goes, How am I supposed to go out and sing a love song after that? <laughs> But he just, he, I, I like touring with him too. But pretty much every band I've worked for, I've liked, yeah. you know, to, to a point, you know. Well, I tell people all the time because people always ask me because I spend so much time with the artists they love. You know, they, they always want to know who the nicest person was. But more often than not, they want to know who the biggest asshole was. And I always tell them, like, it, it's few and far between that they're an asshole to me because I'm not doing anything for them to be mad at me. Yeah. You know, that I'm there most of the time to help them sell concert tickets, sell their albums, to promote them. So there's really no reason to be mad at me. Yeah, and a lot of times, you know, the rigors of the road, you might, someone might see a rock star, quote unquote, yeah, in a, in a bad mood or a bad day, and that, that they're going to judge that, that whole person yeah. on this one interaction. You know, Everybody's it, had a bad day. Everybody doesn't yeah. feel good. Yeah. It happens. It's stressful. I mean, can you swear on this podcast? Yeah, fuck yeah. Well, there's some legendary assholes out there. I'm not going to name drop, yeah. but but my friends have worked for them. I've worked for a few, and they're just they're known to be so difficult. You know, yeah. nobody wants to be around them. You yeah. know, I've only had a couple interactions um, with people that were negative, and I think one of them was just massive ego. And I think the other one was speaking from addiction and that they were just in yeah. the throes of it and that, you know. Yeah, the addiction's tough. I mean, I've been around a lot of, you know. Yeah. I mean, the Aerosmith guys, you know, in the past have battled it. This Scott with STP, yep. you know, rest in peace. He's He was always, no matter what shape he was in, though, he put on a show. Oh, 100%. And yeah. it, it used to blow me away. He would just kind of flip a switch and, and go into automatic mode. Yeah. And and his his stage persona, his moves, the way he interacted, you know, it's just, it would always amaze me. You could tell he was doing what he was born to do. It's yeah. like, a guy like that's not going to be a welder. And no disrespect to welders, yeah. but like he was just born to be that performer. That's just well, he was. what he was supposed to be. Yeah, there's certain people that, that are rock stars without trying to be. Yes. Like in the old days, I always... I always used to say Jim Morrison, Bon Scott, those two guys, they're rock stars without trying to be. Keith Moon. Yeah, Moon. <laughs> Moon was out there. He wasn't going to be a first grade teacher. Oh, no, no. But, <laughs> you know? But just, but just the way those guys acted on stage and unique, you know, yeah. for the time. So they weren't emulating anybody. Yeah. They, they were just doing what came natural and being themselves. Yeah. You know, as far as drummers, though, it's like there's a lot of drummers that, there's only so much you can do with a drum kit, yeah. you know? So you got people that everybody borrows from everybody if they can pull it off. Right. You know, but like Morgan, he was one of the most, you know, unique guys I had teched for. Yeah. Just as far as he, the way he played, you know, but everybody else is pretty much standard players minus Mangini, you know? Yeah. And, and, and Portnoy was great, great drummer too. Mike's Portnoy's memory was insane. You know, as far as he, he would know so many songs with all these different bands he's been in. Right. 
And and that's like when Mangini, the stuff he can do with all his odd time polyrhythmic stuff and stuff I don't understand. Yeah. I just know what he did just, you know, blew my socks off, you know. <laughs> and it's it's just, you know, and they're down to earth guys that, you know, we all hang out together when we can. Yeah. You know, we do the hammerhead hoedown, we call it, down our buddies <laughs> every summer. So Sean goes to it, yep. you know, all, all, Pat, Gary, and we just have a, a good day hanging out. And, yeah. Which which a lot of guys like that don't get a chance to do because they're always gone. Yeah, it is. That's why, like, my first question whenever I interview a band is, where are you right now? Because half the time they don't even know. Yeah, a lot of times you, yeah, that happens, uh, especially on a big tour, you know. Yeah. If, 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 if it's hectic, a lot of bands have to, like Aerosmith, we don't do more than, t- we do one show, a couple days off. Yeah. You know, they need, the, Steven needs a vocal rest. Yep. So you kind of, you have a lot of downtime, but then then you'll do a smaller tour where you're doing five, six shows in a row, you know, and then you're like, oh yeah, this is what it's like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not as glamorous, you know, but but it's still, I still like doing what I do. Yeah. And it's. You know, it's something that comes up on the show all the time. I think rock fans in particular really realize how much we needed to be able to go to shows when it got taken away from us with COVID. That it's something that is just so ingrained in our lifestyle that it's something we missed so much that when it was gone, it was like, wait, I want to be with my people. That's yeah. where I go to feel normal. That's where I go to experience the music I love, to get yeah. together with my friends and have that shared experience. And when it's gone, it was like, oh. And I think more than other genres of music, rock music is really dependent on that live experience. Yeah, it is. Because it just seems other genres now have surpassed the average rock show. Yeah. You know, like the... The pop stuff and the, and the country stuff we touched on earlier. I'm not fans of that stuff, but these people are selling out stadiums. Oh, sure. Know, and it's stuff I wouldn't bat an eyelash <laughs> at listening to. But, you know, I respect them. Yeah. All the, all the power to them. It's just, I'm not going to go to it. Yeah, it's not my bag. Yeah, it's not. And I, I wouldn't even know any of the newer bands, really. It's, There's some it's really sad. good ones that are coming out. There's some really great new music coming out. Um but it's a weird time in music. Technology has changed so much. I mean, yeah. look at us. You yeah, know, a couple it, of dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, being an MCHQ, whereas you've known me for my whole career, being in a radio station, and it's like podcasting is growing so fast yeah. that the whole industry is changing now. It's nuts. It is. It is, and, and like you said, you can do do a make a living from your living room. Yeah. Nowadays, or your basement. Yeah. People are doing it every day. Yeah. yeah. And it's all all the power to them, you know? But we still, like, thankfully, the live shows are back now, right? So we were talking about, like, the the load-in process and getting the stage and the lights rigged and the PA and all of that. Uh, If you go back and listen to the Frank Scambalone episode, he really went into detail about about the process of being a front of house sound engineer, being a monitor guy, being in charge of the sound that the band actually hears. So now it's time for the back line to get put up and you as a drum tech, I want to go through, it's not just setting up a set of drums for you. No, no. And you touched on it a little bit about the needs and wants of 
and the preferences of the drummer that you're working for. So kind of run through that process for me because you got to do it every day. Yeah. So basically, you know, some tours I help set up the drum riser. Uh, Some tours it's, you know, the carpenter set it up. But, I, you know, as far as setting up, I always get my road cases around me. They always want to give you a local to help. Sometimes they force it on you. So I just have that person open up my road cases, hang out. If I need you, I'll, I'll let you know because I like to do it myself. Yeah. So the first thing you always start with is a kick drum. You know, you attach the pedal, a double pedal, then the hi-hat and snare. I call that kind of like the, the infield because that's the drummer's main area he's going to be playing right his hi-hat snare kick and then i then you you add all the toms stands it's like the ringo drum set like strip it down it's like that's the bare essentials of a drum set yeah and ringo yeah ringo got the four-piece kit yeah a couple crashes i mean that's a miracle gig to get (laughs) as far as a drum tech (laughs) that don't seem to happen too often no no but you set so you set that up and if you got to change heads you know sometimes i'll change heads before, you know, if you got downtime, before you get put up on deck, you know, I'm changing heads out back, cleaning cymbals, you know, just kind of getting a jump on anything I can so I'm not under the gun the later we get. Because sometimes, you know, setup runs late and you're not getting the stage until later. And you're still expected to have a band come in for a, a, a sound check and there's no excuse. Yeah, the, the show is up yeah, against a curfew. It is. So you can't make the show go later. No, and, and doors you can push a little bit, yeah, which has happened, you know. So I'll so I'll get the kit up and run, and then I'll um I'll mic up the kit, run the loom. I like to be neat. So a lot of sound guys, uh, like the tech, the crew tech, you know, they won't be as neat as I will setting up a a drum loom to hide all the cables to make them go up neat, you know, just stuff like that. I'm a little bit anal about that, and uh, but I'm pretty good. When I've been with a drummer for a while of knowing exactly, you know, you you memory lock all your stands and you know the angles stuff's supposed to go. But there's guys that'll tell me, look, you nail this kit every day, but I'm going to come in and move something just because I'm a fidgeter. Right. And he goes, don't take it. I go, I'm not taking anything personal. I go, you're the boss. You do whatever you want. You know, so once you get it all set up and then you kind of wait and they start ringing out the monitors, you know, all the sound guys, all the stage monitors. A lot of guys nowadays have in-ear monitors. Uh, some of the old school bands have actual speakers. Like Joe Perry won't wear in-ear monitors. So you have to have wedges everywhere. So they voice all those out. And then usually the first thing you start with is the kick drum. You know, front of house guy want to start with a kick. So you got to hit the kick a bunch of times, snare, hat, go through everything that's mic'd. You know, then play a little beat for them, and then they'll start with bass or keys or guitar. And then, you know, sometimes they want a crew jam, so we do a little bit of a crew jam. And, you know, once they're satisfied that everything sounds good, you're pretty much set until showtime or until when the band walks on stage. And when the band gets up there, they want the same thing every day. Right. They want to put in their ears and say, this sounds golden, just like it did last time, you know. But there's also venues that can affect the sound of drums. Obviously, they're, they're wood and metal. So if it's colder, you know, they can be sharp. If, you know, if it's hot, the, the heads can detune, you know, kind of like hitting pudding. So you, <laughs> so you have to kind of be up on it, you know. And every guy likes 
a different sound, you know. Like I did some stuff this this past year with Todd Zuckerman from Sticks, who's one of the craziest, insane drummers on the planet. But he liked his snare drum very loose. And that's what I, I equated it to. I said it's like hitting a, a tub of pudding. But the sound guy out there loves the way it sounds, and he can get a great sound for the audience. Right. And it's more, and Todd was like, I'm not a fan of it, but it appeases Cookie, the sound guy, let him, you know, let's keep him happy. Because you're, when you're talking about a, a snare drum head, a tight snare drum head is what you would hear in a marching band. Yeah. The snap, 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 pop, 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 like. Yeah, and most of them are tight. Yeah. But not 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 as tight as like, yeah, marching drum stuff, but depending. But everybody likes it different, you know. The, a drum is only going to sound good in a small window, whether it's a tom or floor tom, you know. If you crank it up too tight, it's not going to have any mid-body to it. It's kind of going to be like hitting a trash can cover, ding, ding. Yeah. You know, you want the warmth, you know, and the depth of it. So it's tricky. It's tricky. That's the hardest part of the gig is, is tuning the drums for me. I'm pretty good at it. There's guys better than me, though. and But I just try my best and, and seem to keep people happy. We see at the end of shows all the time, the drummer always comes out and, like, flings the heads of the drums like frisbees into the arena. So when you talk about changing the heads, is that dependent on the drummer, how often you have to do that? Yeah, it depends on how hard they hit. So I've worked for drummers that aren't the hardest hitters, but some guys destroy heads in one show. So you have to change them out for the next show. And a lot of times, yeah, they in the past guys would sign them, fling them. Some guys wouldn't want to do that, so I'd give them to a local. I'd ask the local crew, hey, anybody here a drummer? You know, these heads are still great. They'll be cool in your kit for a while, but... You know, and you can get away with using, like on Aerosmith, I would change the snare every two shows for Joey. And, and the toms, you know, every, probably every three. But even though I could get away with going more, I never, these guys all have endorsements with the big companies. And you get the product free, most of it. But I would never abuse it and just to change them for the hell of it. You know, I, I'm not a waste guy, you know. I'm yeah. like, these, these drums still sound good. I'm not going to change the heads. And most guys are like, yeah, whatever you think, man. Yeah, I trust you. So, But you also don't want to have a head break in the middle of a show no. because then you're going to work in a big way. Uh, the, the drum tech's biggest fear is breaking a kick drum during a show. And because that's a, a kick drum is a difficult thing to change. And that only happened once in my career, and it was with Morgan. <laughs> uh, and I, I remember it was a nightmare. I forget where we were, but... His pedal broke his beater, and the uh, the shaft, which is metal, went through the head. It was a two-ply head, so it only wrecked the first ply, and I was able to take some gaff tape, which is... The savior of no, all things rock it, and roll. It is, it is. It's it's the super glue of uh, wounds. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was able to get it at least fixable, you know, to finish out the show. But that is a nightmare. So much, in fact, on Aerosmith that... You know, Steven brought it up to us, you know, a few a few runs ago in Vegas. He's like, what's going to happen if you break a kick? You know, so now I have an extra kick all mic'd up internally, stand, you know, on standby near me in case, you know, and you have to be able to slide that kick drum out, you know, without interfering the rest of the kit. So, so that's what I was going to say. So normally on a on a drum kit that somebody's got in their garage – all of the other drums are attached to the kick drum with stands and stuff. 
So, yeah. but, but on a professional drum kit, there's stands, cages. Yeah. Most guys I tech for, we don't mount anything. You know, there are mounts on certain drums where you can have two mounts for your two, two rack toms. Yeah. You know, we use snare baskets. If it's just got one ply, you use a snare stand or you use a rack system. So they're floating above it. That's the ideal thing. And you try to keep everything away from that kick drum in case you have to slide it out. It's a nightmare if it happens. Yeah. They're going to have to go to the guitar solo or, or something. Yeah. A guy <laughs> like Steven Tyler can riff with the audience for a while and uh, do some crowd interaction stuff, but, but you're still stalling. And to go back to what we're talking about, they're not moving curfew. No. Because no. you're getting into union labor costs. And if it's an outdoor thing like Fenway, they only have permits to make that much noise to a certain time in yeah. that neighborhood. So all of a sudden now, because the pyro, the lights, the projection, all of that's dependent on the song, the longer it takes for McGee behind the drum set to swap out that kick drum, yeah. you're screwing around with the whole show. Yeah, and you don't want all eyes on you. <laughs> it's happened to me. I mean, with snares, you you know, people break a snare, you got to do a quick change. Yeah. You know, and, and just... Stuff's going to break when you're a drummer. Yeah. I mean, the nature of that instrument is taking a beating. Yeah. So, but some guys don't hit as hard and, and stuff lasts. So you kind of get comfortable knowing nothing's going to be getting shattered or you're not going to have to run out there. Most of the time I make an appearance is to fix a microphone that, that's flopped or fallen or something like that. I talked to a mutual friend of ours, um, Chad Brandolini from Vader Percussion. Oh, yeah. And he was on the show uh, with Dan, um, I mean, with uh, with Mikey Wendron, oh, Mikey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talking about the specifics of, of drumsticks, designing yeah. drumsticks for a specific drummer, and, um, you know, how hard the drummer hits, the, the kind of sound they want, working with the drum heads and kind of getting that combination. And then there's always the broken drumstick thing, right? Like we've all seen, and it's a little dangerous for the drummers to be hucking pieces of wood oh, yeah. out into the crowd, but also a fan of that drummer, like you want the drumstick. Oh yeah, everybody likes drumsticks. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've, I've gotten hit in the face multiple times with broken sticks sitting in my position. You know, drum something will shatter and all of a sudden it's flying at you, hit you between the <laughs> eyes. Often to the point where I'm like, I should probably wear safety goggles. You probably should. And and I think about it a lot because, if, you know, I've been hit so many times. Yeah. I mean, there was a story with uh, Tico Torres from Bon Jovi. He broke a stick once. He told me and Joey, we were talking to him, and it flung up and stuck in his neck, <gasps> the, the shop point. And it was kind of wedged into his neck. And he had to, he said he had his tech give him a piece of tape. He Gaff just, tape. He taped it on and finished the show until they could pull it out. You know, it wasn't like a life or death right. thing, but it was enough that it stuck inside. But he got of him. impaled. Yeah, he got impaled a little bit. So, who in your career who broke the most sticks? Was it Morgan? Um, yeah, I would probably say Morgan, but but he when I started with Morgan, he hadn't switched over to to Vader yet, which Chad Brando. You know, I've known Chad a long time, and he's been great. Anytime I've done a Vader guy, you know, I live 12 minutes from the, the factory. Right. You know, so I get to go over there and he hooks us up amazingly. But, and I think they make the best stick out there. Uh, but Morgan probably broke the most sticks. 
Uh, just I because he hits so hard. Yeah, and he, he plays a double butt end stick, so he doesn't have a tapered. Most drumsticks have a shoulder that tapers down to like an acorn bead. Some have plastic on them, but and then and guys use aluminum sticks like Tommy Lee, you know Lars. They they have these ahead. They're made out of aluminum, so you could get you know a year using a drumstick. Wow! But it, there's something about wood, you know. Yeah. And 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 at the end of the night, conversely, like when you when a show ends, I I always call it the baby bird syndrome, the front row. I, <laughs> I jump up there, and the first thing I usually start doing after I do all my small work is taking off the cymbals. And everybody in the front row is asking for sticks. So I've learned just to keep my head down and, and ignore them, you know. And they're like, drum guy, sticks, stick, Drum guy. You know? And I just ignore them, and I ignore them, unless it's something. I've given sticks to, I give them out. Yeah. But a lot of tours, you only get so many. Right. You know, and so, and I've been called an asshole. From the crowd for not uh, giving somebody a stick and like, I don't have any broken ones and, you know. I don't want to give out the brand new ones. We're going to need them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but I have, I've, I've always given, you know, especially kids or or people. If I see people in wheelchairs or handicapped, I'll go above and beyond just to get them something because normally they don't have a chance, you know, to stand up or, or, and ask for stuff. And so that makes me, you know, happy. Yeah. Giving people stuff. When you um, are working with different drummers, depending on the tour, right, you go from a band like Hoobastank that's just in a room playing video games before the show to, you know, Kiss and Aerosmith when you've got projection, inflatables, backdrops, pyro especially. Yeah. There's all this going on. It comes up all the time. It doesn't matter the generation of the band. Spinal Tap holds true. <laughs> Spinal Tap is law. It happens to everyone. You're going to either A, get lost backstage in Cleveland, or B, get trapped in the pod on stage, <laughs> or C, the Stonehenge prop coming down that's not what you expected. <laughs> you have got to have some really good Spinal Tap stories about things that have gone wrong on tours. Well, mo- see, most of the time being a, a drum guy, I'm on stage waiting for the band to get brought up. So I don't really see a lot. Like I know on Aerosmith, we had a guy specifically that would tape out the floor with fluorescent gaff tape with arrows right in stage. You know, so pretty much anybody could find the stage. Because it seems ridiculous, but those arenas, they all start to look the same. The bands have to have signs to tell them where their dressing rooms are, to tell them where catering is, yeah. to tell them where the production office is. Yeah. There's colored tape and arrows because they're just these concrete tunnels. You don't know where the hell you're going. Yeah, That's why the Cleveland thing's so friggin' funny because it happens all the time. Well, when I, when I had morphed into uh, Joey's road manager, like on Aerosmith, uh, he had had his kid come do some tech work for him, which kind of left me giggless. So that's when I worked for Steven for six months as his road assistant, personal assistant. And, uh, but then I came back to do Joey as his road manager. They call his road manager, personal assistant though. And we were down in South America. You always get the police escorts, which are crazy because these guys are on motorcycles flying. I know. And you're in a convoy. And so that something happened with Joey. Couldn't, he couldn't leave with the convoy. We had to leave later. And, we drove around this arena. We couldn't, the guy didn't speak English. 
my Spanish wasn't any good. He couldn't find a way into the venue. And every all the tempers were flaring back there. <laughs> Joe was kind of like, what the, you know, what the hell's going on here? Does this guy know where he's going? And you know, so that took that took like forty minutes. Oh my god. Of circling and, and there's a sea of people outside yeah. the stadium because they're all going to the show and it's just so that was probably my most spinal tap finding the gig yeah. type of thing. But I've seen motorcycle cops hit cars <gasps> and go f- guy flying over the hood. They've wiped out. It's insane to be part of a police escort. I don't know if you've ever been involved in one. Yeah, it's 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 kind of cool, too. You're yeah. like, is this what it's like to be the president? Like, you don't go to stop at lights? Like, this is nice. Yeah, it's cool. And then you go, then multiply it times 10 in South America. Right. Because it's even nuttier. Oh, yeah. Those guys are crazy. South I'm, American rock and metal fans are... are they're the best. They're, yeah. they're the most insane people... In a good way. You yeah. know, they, they love Passionate. the band. They, they'll camp out. You know, I got pictures and videos somewhere of, you know, thousands of fans outside the band's hotel with flags. And they write chalk, you know, all over the ground. And, and, and you know, Stephen, when I was with him, he would go out there and he'd spend like an hour just going down the line, signing stuff, taking pictures. And so a lot of these guys are good to the fans when they can be. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's hard all the time. Well, they're maintaining schedules. And for a guy like Steven Tyler, it also comes up in a lot of the interviews I do with the singers that talking's the worst thing for your voice. Oh, and yeah. if you're a singer like Steven Tyler, kind of hard for Aerosmith to play without you. And it's not a secret that he likes to talk. Yeah. So. <laughs> Which for somebody that interviews people for a living, yeah. love it. Oh, yeah. He's- I got his harmonica <laughs> up there. Oh, I should have brought you one. For my- I'll, I'll get you one. I have some from uh, just... In the past, he'd throw one to me or they get left in the drum riser. So I just throw them in the drum work box and... Just keep them? Yeah, I give them to people here and there. Well, that harmonica that's up there by the picture, he gave me a harmonica lesson on the air. But I went to Toys R Us and bought little kid first act harmonicas. And that's what he gave me the harmonica lesson on with these little kid, this is my first (laughs) instrument harmonicas. The audio's hilarious of him giving me the harmonica lesson, but at the end of it, he goes, this thing actually sounds pretty good. Can I keep it? <laughs> so at some point somewhere, Steven Tyler took a little kid's harmonica, took it with him. Who knows if he ever used it recording something. He probably still has it. <laughs> He's probably the most insanely talented person, though, that I've ever... I mean, his ear. Yeah. He can hear, like doing Aerosmith rehearsals, he'll hear something. You know, the band's just trying... To get through a song, you know, but he'll he'll stop it. Hey, you hit the wrong, note. and he's always right. Yeah, you know, which but, just pisses everybody off. Exactly. I'm sure it's like let us just do the song. You know? And he's a drummer, yeah. so it's like when you and that happens a lot too. That there are a lot of lead singers that come from a drumming background. Oh yeah, and so they're not blissfully unaware of your world. He knows exactly what's going on with you because he's a drummer too. Oh yeah, and he 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 definitely knows and. You know, he's, you know, he rode Joey hard, you know, through the years. That, yeah. That's not, not known in the, in the industry, but just because, I don't know, I think he's such a perfectionist. Yeah. You know, but. You don't get to that level of success without being rubber stamped difficult. Yeah. Because you've got to have a, a vision and it's, uh, and it's all you, you're the face of it. Yeah. So it's like. You know, it all, if it sucks, it's on you. So you want it to be great. Oh, yeah. And he's had 
pretty much three different eras of his voice too. Right. You know, we always joke in our circle with the, the first album voice, you know, which is more nasally. Yeah. You know, we I, that's my favorite era. You know, the first four Aerosmith albums to me are the best. I mean, no, nothing touches that, but you know, but they've continued to have a career, you know, doing songs like that stuff from the eighties, nineties, Yeah. you know, so they have their fan base, but they have so many songs it's hard to appease everybody with a set list because you can only play so many songs. Yeah. You know, if it was up to me, I wouldn't hear anything after 80. You know? <laughs> so I'm not good with doing a set list. But. Yeah. And all the big hits came way after, like the big yeah. commercial yeah, hits. Yeah, the commercial hits. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. the big ballads, the Armageddon soundtrack stuff, all that stuff is just so. Oh, yeah. And, it, and it's huge. Angel, crazy. Yeah. You know, and it, so it's hard to appease everybody. What about on stage stuff, the trapped in the pod spinal tap stuff, the big technical, you know, getting stabbed in the neck with drumsticks? Like, what have you been part of on stage that was just like, oh shit? Uh, well, I've stopped people from running on stage before. <laughs> uh, I clotheslined one guy on STP. I didn't mean to, but, you know, he went ass over tea kettle up on the. <laughs> I just kind of stuck my arm out at the last minute, but. I don't know. I mean, I've seen musicians, Stevens falling off the stage at Sturgis, you know, and they brought him back to my world. I had a towel, so we had to, you know, his head was bleeding, shoulder messed up. And in Japan, Steven fell off a stage, you know. It happens all the time. I yeah. mean, Dave Grohl obviously famously broke his leg. Like, no matter how much bright tape you put on the edge of the stage. Yeah. These guys are up there sometimes 12 feet off the ground with all those lights and pyro in their faces. Oh, yeah, and Tom, you know, Tom's tripped over Brad's pedal board backing up. You know, sometimes you go down. So much confetti on, on a plexiglass stage. Like on Aerosmith, we always have ramps going out into the crowd. And when at the end, when they blow the confetti, I've seen people take spills just slipping. You know, they go right on their ass. You know, it's more of an embarrassing thing. Yeah. But but it happens, you know, but I don't know. I mean, I haven't really seen too much spinal tap stuff, you know. Like when I went I was at the Aerosmith Extreme show at Fenway this past summer. Yeah. And when they put the piano up on the uh, monster. Yeah. And you could tell that Steven was having issues with something. Either the band couldn't hear him, he couldn't hear the band, and everybody that I was with at the show were like Spinal Tap lives. Yeah, I guess that would be a bit of a Spinal Tap moment, but we never really got to rehearse that properly Yeah, with the lack of time we had for that show. But that was a good show, though. Oh, it was great. You know, and seeing the extreme guys get to open and... Oh. I mean, just seeing shows at Fenway, even though they've been doing it for a while now, is still a trip to me. Oh, and, yeah. And then to see local guys be able to go and play in that coliseum that legendary venue oh yeah as a, as a boston native right you get goosebumps yeah you know being on on that hallowed ground yeah exactly you know I, i've seen billy joel there a couple times i got to sit on the side of the stage so that was my only time uh working a show was the aerosmith thing oh it was okay. great great to be there though and it, yeah it was it was a tough tough few days of yeah. just it, it, you know, it gets gets hectic is the word I would use. And that's not a venue that's built for sound. To no. go back to what you were talking about, like there are venues, old theaters specifically, that were built for acoustics that sound amazing. 
Yeah. But when you start the old garden, you know, when you start going into these big sporting arenas where it's all concrete and all metal and yeah. it just doesn't, it's not meant for sound and trying to make a venue as odd shaped as Fenway sound good. Yeah, it's tough. You, that's when you're lucky you're just the drum guy. Oh, yeah. And Ship, you're not the yeah. sound guy. Well, John Ship runs front of house, so he had his hands full for that. Yeah, I bet. He's a great, great front of house guy, but it's a difficult thing to try to chase sound in a big stadium. Yeah. Like that. So, but overall, though, I think people like the show. Oh, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. It was it. And to see Aerosmith celebrating that, even though it had been postponed, you know, I talked to Pat Badger before it happened and he was like, that date's been circled on my calendar. Like, I can't wait to be able to get up on that stage. It's going to be a total trip to play a show with Aerosmith at Fenway. Like what? Oh yeah. And Pat, Pat too had gotten, uh, he had, well, obviously Pat's, uh, buddy, uh, Jim Meridian, they used to, they build the bases. And Pat had given Tom a bass years ago, and Tom played it a lot, and it's just been sitting in the lockup. So Pat asked me, he goes, you think Tom would, you know, give me back that bass just for, <laughs> for sentimental reasons? Right. Uh, you know, because Jim had passed away, and, and it was very close to Pat. And so I, I just approached Tom about it, and he was very cool. And I go, Pat wants to play this on Fenway. And so Tom graciously let him have it. Wow. Uh, Pat got it. He used it in Maine. And, you know, I was with Tom on the side of the stage. He was watching Pat play it. So uh, for, for Pat, that was a great moment. You right. Know? But uh, just, I don't know. And those guys, I was with them backstage right before they went on, you know, because I've worked with Extreme a bunch here and there. I know those guys. And, you know, we had given Gary his new uh, rock pole. I don't know. You know how he has two uh, mic stands? Yeah. One without the bass. Yeah. So me and Dana and it's what you call my it friend the rock Nicole, pole? he calls it the rock pole. It's, it's tribute <laughs> to Freddie. Gotcha. So we had one. I found a guy. He made it out of carbon fiber. Screw, wow. Screws together like a, a pool cue. And it's very light. And he, you know, he got to use it and loved it. So that was his uh, delayed birthday gift. It took a while to make. Talking about local crews and, and psychotic like music and rock fans, Gary, we're talking about Gary Sharon from Extreme. He told me this crazy story about touring in Japan once that they did sound check and Gary likes to perform barefoot and had asked if somebody had like an area rug that they could put in front of his microphone because he was barefoot. And he said they left to like go to dinner after sound check and came back and the Japanese local crew had taken everything off the stage, fully carpeted the stage, and put everything back exactly where it was because Gary had just asked for an area yeah, rug. I believe it. Japanese, I love, that's my favorite place to go. I went uh, seven times in nine years, and the last time I was there was with Extreme in 05. But I haven't been back since. But their, their crew, they take pictures of stuff, you know, so they can replicate it. They're, they're diehard it's in in the crowds though they clean up their own mess they what yeah when you watch a crowd they're very polite to clap and as soon as the show ends they file out single row take their trash with them throw it away the arena it's as neat as when they came in really oh they yeah they're the best i i call them the best fans as far as being most behaved and and, and polite they are they, it's it's cool to do a show there Wow. And your shows that, you know, you're usually done by eight o'clock because everybody's got to get the, they go after work, 
Sometimes you're going on at 6 o'clock, 6 or 7. They don't do the late night shows, 10, 11 o'clock at night in Japan? No, I've never done one that late. Really? Yep. Because everybody's got to go to work the next day? Yeah, they got to get the train home and work. And Wow. But I've, I've had some of my best uh, fun moments there. Just Like I said, I the joke was there's two, two big things in Japan when I'm there, Mount Fuji and Mount McGee. <laughs> and... That's when my alter ego would come out when I used to just have, I'd have a few too many drinks. And uh, I think one time I had alcohol poisoning. Oh. And, you, and but you still got to work. Right. You know, we got in, literally I got in at, at 10 or 6 in the morning and we had to leave at 6. Oh. And I only did that a handful of times in my career. Now I wouldn't even dream of it, you know. Yeah, because you're just drunk. I, I don't drink anymore. Right. I never had an issue with it. I just gave it up no sense you know yeah well let's talk about i mean you you've worked with so many legendary artists and for a fan you get what's on the music you maybe follow them on instagram or twitter or whatever which is more newer access and then you get the live show that's the access you get i get a little bit more of that access because i get to actually sit down and talk to them and interview them and sometimes introduce them on stage or hang out with them a little backstage <clears throat> But you're around the artists on the days off. You're traveling on the planes with them. You're getting, you're in the same hotels. You're on the buses. So talk to me about the artists that you travel with and have worked for that are like the biggest practical jokers or like some of the ridiculous moments of going out on an off day and sightseeing. What's it like to be on a tour with a band when you're not playing? Yeah, I think probably the most fun I ever had, though, was still that first tour with Vibe because Mangini, as you know, is crazy. And <laughs> we had Phil Bino, who's uh, another Boston. Uh, he was playing bass. And the schedule was so rigorous that, you know, we had jet lag a lot of times. We, we'd get invited to Sony dinners. You know, like in Taiwan, we had this dinner with, had like a 30-foot table that spun. So you could just spin the food in front of people. And, and me and Mike, we got into a giggle fit. And we have it on video, VHS. <laughs> and when you lose it, when you're trying not to laugh, like Steve was getting aggravated. And, and when you're trying to contain a laugh, it makes you it a hundred times worse. You can't. And Phil had to get up from the table and leave <gasps> because he was crying coming out of his eyes. And <laughs> it was around the time Silence of the Lambs came, came out. And yep. Mike was quoting parts of that and it just <laughs> and it, it might be silly to the, to the listener but when you're involved in it yeah you know and you're tra you're you're jet lagged you're sleep deprived you're in a place where you don't know a lot of people there's there's booze around oh yeah and you and you, you're sleeping uh on floors of airports waiting for your flight you know you get canceled I, i've been stuck at an airport for two days Ugh. once from ice storms trying to get home for christmas uh, it's, it's a lot. The travel takes it out on you. you yeah, know? it does. And especially the older you get, but I've heard a lot of bands say, you know, the money that I make isn't for the two hours on stage. It's for the 22 hours. I'm not. Oh yeah. And there's no such thing as a day off on the road. Right. Cause, cause you're either traveling, you know, if, if you're on a bus, you know, I like being on a bus. You can sleep good in those, in those bunks on a bus. Pretty good. I'm not claustrophobic. Uh, and I do pretty good sleeping. Like last summer, I went out with uh, Stained, opening up for Corn. Uh, Sal was another great drummer. He was a drum tech. 
he was Stain's drum tech for 20 years and he became the drummer. So he asked me to go out and I'm like, yeah. See, that's, you should have learned how to play the drums, McGee. <laughs> I couldn't play that stuff. That's tough. <laughs> that's tough stuff too. Yeah. But, no, but so we got to go out and, and, you know, we got COVID, you know, Jonathan got COVID and then two days later I had it for my first, I've had it three times now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The first time was pretty horrible. Second time mild. And then, then I got it in October in Cabo doing uh Sammy's birthday shows. Yeah. And I came home with it. Ugh. That was tough, tough, but it's, you just get through it, you know, the best you can. And I guess it's there. Like Aerosmith, we were testing for COVID every show day. So we would have to show up in the morning, get tested, get cleared, work, you know. Other bands have kind of written it off by now. Yeah. I'm more of a kind of, I wish it was, you can't live in fear, you know. Right. It, it, you, it's a real thing, obviously, but if you get it, you do what you got to do. That's my motto, you know? I mean, there's there's people that have gotten it that have been completely unscathed. Yeah. And then there's um, Dave from Jane's Addiction, the guitar player. He's got long COVID. Oh, uh, does he? he? He's been suffering for over a year with long COVID. He can't tour. Wow. He He's not even able to be in the recording studio from what I've been reading online and work on the new record. Yeah. He's been dealing with it, and, and they don't know what to do. Yeah, I don't even know how. It's so crazy. It does. Have you had it? No. Oh, you haven't had it? No. It does definitely leave you, like my taste and smell never came back fully. Really? Yeah, I'm probably at about 40, 50%. Wow. And, but, but the fogginess is real too. Yeah. COVID brain, they say. Yeah, that is a real thing. Yeah. And it's, it messed you up. It it, it makes you feel like more old than you are because you can't remember like, who is that? You know, you, you're trying to think of something and I don't know, maybe it's old age too, but we're getting it, up there. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of affects everybody differently. And I don't know why I haven't gotten it because I've cared for family members that had it, that needed somebody to take care of them. And then, you know, when I was able to get vaccinated, I was like, yeah, hook me up. Like I've gotten so many vaccines from my trips overseas with the military and I was just oh, yeah. like, look, I don't know what was in any of those. So just give me the vaccine. Yeah. Like, I, I'm at this point. Your insides are probably glowing. Anyway, so. <laughs> There's probably some yeah. Pentagon <laughs> tracking chip in me or something. I don't know at this point. Yeah, it is what it is. I mean, if you, I'm not an anti-vax guy. I'm not one of those. And I'm not, I don't like people being forced to take stuff either. You know, Yeah, it's just I, you, you got to do what you want to do. Yeah. You know, as long as it doesn't affect me, don't, you know. Well, that's the thing is that if it gets to the point where, you know, large gatherings where all of a sudden everybody, I mean, like things like the measles and mumps are coming back because people don't even want to get the old vaccines. It's like, I I don't even know what the mumps actually is. And I just know I don't want it. I picture you wake up looking like the elephant man. Yeah. There's got to be bumps all over you. Yeah, I don't want it. That I know. I had chicken pox at two months old. Me, I had it when I was a kid too. Yeah. And my niece, we got into a conversation about the COVID vaccine and, and she, you know, we were, we were talking and I was like, well, you've never had chicken pox, right? And she was like, no, cause she's in her early twenties and she doesn't know anyone that her age that ever had it. And I was like, well, you know, I had the chicken pox and you know what happened when a kid in the neighborhood got chicken pox, everybody's parents brought their kids over yeah. to catch the chicken pox. And she goes, did they call DSS? 
<laughs> and I was like, DSS. Oh, you rubbed the, you rubbed their heads together. Yeah, you, you wanted your kid to get chicken pox, and she was like. Parents willingly gave their kids chicken pox. And I was like, yeah, because it was dangerous if you didn't get it when you were young. Yeah. If you got it when you were older and they purposefully wanted you to get it, there wasn't a vaccine for it. That blew her mind. She That's thought funny. it was child abuse. <laughs> that just shows you the different era. Yeah, 100%. Of people our age, you know, yeah. how, how we were. You know, we'd be out the door at sunlight and come home at dusk. Parents didn't know where we were. No, building forts. In the woods, lighting shit on fire. Oh, yeah. Too many times. <laughs> Parachuting from trees. We used to do that. Yeah. Clock. Well, now I'm parachuting from planes, but yeah. I'm a little safer. Not me. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> so you talk about Sammy Hagar and all of the other artists that you've worked with. In everybody that you've met, has anyone figured out the fountain of youth and is having a better time in their life than Sammy Hagar? No. I really think he's discovered the secret to life. He has. I mean, he's 75 now. He looks great. Yeah. He just, he likes to have a good time. Yeah. He's not going to do as many shows this year, I hear, but, you know, he probably, they tell me he gets bored. He might add some here and there. Yeah. But I kind of went out there as a fill-in, probably did 12, 12 to 15 shows with him, teching for uh, Jason, you know, whose dad was John Bonham. Yeah. So... Anytime. Yeah, when you say Jason, like anytime I interview people and they start dropping first names, I'm always very quick to be like, Jason Bonham. Yeah, I wasn't trying to clang one, but. (laughs) No, no, but like, I just, I just talked about, uh, I just interviewed Luke Spiller from the Struts a couple weeks ago and he was talking about Queen and he was like, Brian. And I was like, Brian May. Like, (laughs) I want to make sure people understand who you're talking about when you say Brian. Oh yeah. Yeah. You do. And it's just, and Jason's a fun guy. Yeah. Very jovial. Never called me by my real, my nickname, because, you know. Did he my, always call you John? No, no, my, uh, well, my British friend who hired me, you know, they're both British, he said, this is Maggie. He called me Maggie. <laughs> so every time I saw Jason, he would call me Maureen or or <laughs> Samantha. That was a, that was a funny one. He'd go, hello, Samantha. I can't do the British accent, but, but he, he was a fun guy to tech for. And, you know, th- this past year, yeah, I had like four different bands that I feel tech tech for so it was fun branching out and meeting new people yeah and especially when you have a career and you're good at what you do people find out about you without you even knowing about it like what's the most random call that you got and you were like how the hell did you even hear about me how did you get my number um i'm not sure on that you know because i'd have to think i mean Get, getting that STP call was cool. Yeah. You know, because I liked the band so much. Yeah. And, but then from that, we opened up for Aerosmith for, for the last seven shows that the band was together. Uh, and I saw the guitar tech for Joe Perry when they, they were building, uh, what's it on, Lan- on Lansdowne? Oh, the House of Blues I, or the MGM Music Hall? No, I think it was, this was back in 2002. Oh, so that was probably when they I were think, converting Axis and Avalon yeah, into the House of yeah. Blues. And I and I'd gone in to visit a roadie friend and and Joe's tech was in there. And I had just literally that day had these cheesy business cards made up. <laughs> and and I said, Hey Jim, I I don't know if you remember me. I, I was a drum tech on STP and he goes, Oh yeah, yeah. And so I go, What are you doing? He goes, Well, the band's in town getting ready to record, you know, honking on Bobo. Yeah. And I go, Well, I go, I'm the next town over, literally, if you need something. I gave him my card, and uh, I was out doing a gig with Dana, one of his cover bands, and I got a call at like 11 at night. And they said, hey, uh, so Joey's tech can't be here for the album. 
and we need a guy. Would you be interested in coming down and meeting him tomorrow? And I almost fainted for that one. Yeah. Because that, I mean, that's, that's top of the food chain. Yeah. And, uh, especially being a, somebody that grew up in Massachusetts to get the call from Joey Kramer from Aerosmith oh, yeah. to go in the studio and work on a record. Oh yeah. And it was down Joe's house, Joe Perry's. So, wow. so I found myself in Duxbury the next day at two sitting on a stone wall. You know, I, I met the roadies and then you just see sports cars pulling in. <laughs> and, and I had met Joey before just out, but not, he didn't remember me. Yeah. And, uh, so we talked, and, and again, I think my humor helped get me that gig Yeah, because I made him laugh. Joey has a very infectious laugh. Yeah, he does. When, when you get him laughing, it, it, it'll, it'll make the room cackle. So I kind of, you know, I did that, and, you know, there was some flip-flopping on whether I was going to go on tour with him, and eventually he decided to take me. So it was bumpy for a bit. He's a tough guy to, to get the feel for at first, you know, but now, you know, we're, we're like a right shoe and a left shoe together. Right. You know, just in life, you know, and I talk to him every couple of weeks. He's doing pretty good. Is he doing okay? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there was a lot of stuff that has gone on obviously in his personal life, yeah. which kept him off of the Vegas residency shows for a yeah. while. So that's good that he's yeah, doing sad, well. Sad, but he's, he's doing much better. He so. is. Okay. That's good. He's, uh, you know, people have always asked me in a long radio career, like, did you ever slip and like swear? And one of the only times it ever happened was Joey came into the studio and I had been on the air for years at that point when his coffee came out. Oh yeah. Rock and roast. Yeah. And he and I were sitting in the studio just on the air talking about the band and whatever, just like you and I are now. And I forgot that I was on the radio, Uh which never happens. And we're laughing and joking, and I was like, are you shitting me? And Joey's face, because <laughs> he knew we were on the radio, and for a split second, I forgot. And he just, his face went blank. I realized what I had done, went diving for the dump button, <laughs> and then that Joey Kramer laugh came oh, out, yeah. and I was crying laughing because I couldn't believe I had let my guard down oh. enough <laughs> to swear on the air after all those years. Did you get the dump button in I, time? I think so. But I mean, you know, uh, yeah, no, that's funny though. That's a good story, you know, and it and, swear. and it's one of the things that I had to get used to in the reverse with the podcast is that I got the headphones on. I'm sitting in front of the microphone, but we can swear now, which when you go on the radio, it's like, that's yeah. why I always ask my guests to wear headphones because it, it is like a physical reminder that they're, yeah they're on the radio because they're in front of microphones so often able to say whatever they want that the headphones kind of remind them, not with the podcast, yeah. but with the radio, like, hey, be hey, careful. Remember, remember. Yeah, exactly. But even though you can swear, you know, you don't want to just be listening to F-bombs all, yeah. all interview. It, it has a, a time and a place. Yeah. You know. It slips out every once in a while. but yeah. And they do say that people that swear a lot are higher in intelligence, so... I must be wicked smart. <laughs> wicked smart. Yeah, because the, the swears come out. Speaking of the Boston accent, going into the film genre, they always butcher it. Have you ever oh. seen a, a movie that they didn't? Even uh, guys from Massachusetts. Yeah, The Departed. The Departed, I think, uh, who was it? Wahlberg was great in, in, in his role. Yeah. And the departed. But everyone else, yeah, it's kind of, I don't know. Well, because they move out of town. Yeah. And then they come back. And it, it's like, I've been accused of being from Australia down South. I mean, I have a kind of a slow drawl, yeah. you know, but then I'll say the, 
the Boston words, shoppy, water, yeah. park, you know, and people, yeah. oh yeah, there it is. There it is. And for me, going to broadcasting school, like I learned to get rid of it. But if I get mad or drunk or both, the accent comes out in spades. <laughs> you motherfucker! Like it comes out <laughs> and people are like, oh yeah, you are. Because people have been like, you're not from Boston, you don't have an accent. I'm like, piss me off, and you'll find out exactly how Boston I am. I think the last time I saw you, you were overserved. Where? At the Extreme show up in uh, Hampton Beach last year. No, that wasn't Extreme. That was Voyage. That was Dana's oh, Journey was Band. Oh, Voyage. Okay. Yeah. I was, oh, yeah, yeah. I, and you know what it was? I was joking with Gary about it. I got the worst case of hiccups I've ever gotten in my <laughs> life at that show. I never get the hiccups. That's funny. I had them the next morning when I woke up. Really? Yeah. You know why? Because they were selling oil cans of freaking White Claw at the Hampton Beach Casino. <laughs> I hadn't left the house in a year because of COVID. <laughs> and I and all of a sudden, I'm drinking White Claws. Yeah, that was an epic night. I don't get like that very often. Uh, you have to. And gotta, only around friends will I let my hair down like that. I can let the air out of the tire occasionally. Every once in a while, it happens. That's, but, a, that's an insane, uh, that band with Hugo. Yeah. I mean, that's freakish. So we're talking about your friend Dana's yeah. Journey cover band, who is by far, in my opinion, the best Journey oh, yeah. cover band I've ever seen. I think they're better than Journey, and the And Hugo, the lead singer, yeah, he's his a- voice is like literally he's possessed by Steve Perry. And his look, too. The look is what's insane. It's unbelievable. And they are fantastic. And I had never seen them. Dana had been trying to get me to out to a show, and I just never could go for whatever reason. And he was like... You got nothing else to do, Carrie. You're laid yeah. off and there's a pandemic. Will you just come to the show? <laughs> Get off your ass. Yeah, exactly. Basically, I think that's what he said. And I went and I was like, holy shit, you guys are fantastic. Oh, that band could tour the, the, the States oh. nonstop, I think. It, you know, if they And they get the along better than the original members of Journey too. Yeah, there's no, no, no fighting. <laughs> but I was up like dancing. It's unbelievable when you go to see a really good cover band. With a band like Journey, how many hits they have. Same uh, thing with Aerosmith, same thing with ACDC. Yeah. When you get a band that's got that many hits. The catalog is, is never ending. Yeah. It's like, how do you pick? Well, it's like Pat with the Doc Desert Eagles, you know? When yeah. You, the Eagles, people forget how many hits that the Eagles had. They just played the Christmas party for my, my radio station, The Pike. And they played like the private party for all of us. And they were like, normally we pay, we play twice as long. Because there's that many hits. Yeah, it's it's stupid. These band, bands nowadays don't seem to just write that like, like the hits anymore. Yeah. At least, I don't know, maybe the different era, but I don't know. You look at the first Boston album. <sighs> every, wasn't every song on it released? Literally, yeah. And, and that's an insane accomplishment. Look at Appetite for Destruction. That was their debut album. Yeah. Jagged Little Pill from Alanis Morissette. Yeah. Um, uh, Fallen from Evanescence which just got certified diamond in the oh, U.S. Wow. Like, that's got, like, five radio hits on it. It's insane. Alanis, uh, we had a, a a funny story with her. <laughs> well, my friend toured with her, and go, this is going back to Dream Theater. When I was in Japan, uh, and I was during the uh, dark stage, I was polishing the cymbals. And I see a Japanese guy kind of come out from the curtain looking at me, and he's kind of sheepishly uh, stepping closer to me. And finally, he gets up in front of the drums, and I just go, "Hey, how you doing?" And and he, in a broken English, he goes, uh, "Is your name McGee?" And I go, "Yeah." And I, I, I kind of chirp up, thinking this guy's heard of me. Who I'm a nobody, but 
And I go, yeah. And he goes, I hear you're a real fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I see Petrucci's guitar tech laughing his ass off Mark Snyder. He, he set him up to do it. And, oh, my God. Did he even know what fucking asshole meant in English? I, I don't know, but <laughs> it made my day. And then, you know, through the years, I got mocked back once. And then my, my mutual friend Buffer was out with Alanis Morissette. So I went to see him at Great Woods. And so I'm sitting in catering, which, you know, after the show. Yep. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of people in there. And Alanis Morissette comes in and literally sits in the empty seat right next to me. And I'm kind of like, whoa. And uh, she goes, hey, you're McGee, right? And I go, yeah. And she goes, I hear you're a real fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and she gave me a big hug. She goes, Buffer put me up to it. I, I go, that's funny. I mean, yeah. I've been called an asshole before, but not like that. Not by Alanis Morissette. I've been called, well, Stevens called me Humpty Dumpty once. <laughs> <laughs> but I think my my funniest story is probably the David Lee Roth. I always say every roadie, if you got every roadie together, you could each have a chapter of a funny incident on the road. Yep. And in 05, I was doing uh, David Lee Roth, just weekend warrior stuff. Ray Luzier was a drummer. Yep. Who's in corn. From corn, yep incredible guy and drummer and uh so it's my first show and it was it was the summer it was july humid and i go down there early to meet ray we set up the drum kit together just so i could get a feel for it and uh so the show starts and second song in dave kind of stops the show and right into his mic he calls his sound guy this guy doug he calls him number five because he was the fifth fifth sound guy <laughs> he goes number five he goes get up here and fix my microphone I can't do the Roth imitation. Like yeah. Ray, Ray can do it so good. But the guy used to tape his mic together. So David had a, a habit of twisting it and oh. it would unscrew. Yep. So, and which is where the battery goes if it's not yeah. a corded microphone. Yeah. So I'm sitting upstage left of the drums with the guitar tech. And we're both at that point probably three, 320, 320 pounds each. <laughs> so I'm just watching Ray, the band just starts kind of jamming. And all of a sudden in my ear, I hear somebody go, tape. And I turn and it's Roth. Now I've never met him. And being weekend warrior stuff, I just had a little bag of a few tools and I was looking for some electrical tape because I I pulled out some gaff which doesn't stick in humidity. Yep. And uh he, he grabs it out of my hands and gives me a death stare and storms off. So I look at uh, like the, the guitar tech, I go, What was that? And he goes, I don't know. And so the band finishes and as soon as it ends, the tour manager comes. He goes, Dave wants to see everybody in the dressing room now. So I'm the last guy in. And, and I walk in and raise in the corner. And I'm kind of going, what's going on? You know? And he goes, I don't know. And all of a sudden, Dave kicked the door in. Literally, the, the top hinge fell off. And he gets right into his sound guy's face. These are, these are two legendary lines that I think. I've never heard them prior to that or after, but... He goes, you sent me into battle without a fucking sword. So that's his first line, he says. <laughs> and I'm looking down because I'm trying not to giggle. Right. And he goes, that's like sending me into the bedroom with a broken fucking dick. <laughs> so, 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 so those are the first two lines out of him. So I'm just staring down and, uh, and I notice he has my gaff tape in his hand. And so he, then he yells at the, the tour manager for a bit. And then he goes, he goes, and when I'm, uh, when I'm on stage and I ask for tape, he goes, I want tape with hair on its balls, masculine tape, not this female tape. And he throws my gaff tape off the wall. And then he turns right at me and he says, 
And when I ask people to move up there, he goes, you better move. And he's like right in my face like a drill sergeant. He goes, he goes, you were standing around up there like a couple of fucking polar bears. <laughs> and I literally, I, I had to bite my lip to keep from laughing because it was the funniest dressing down I've ever experienced. Oh, my God. And I see Ray, Ray was in the back just going. Like, don't pick a hands. fight. Like, he's and, the boss, man. And, and then he even got closer to me and he says, you got an insolent look on your face. He goes, you got something you want to say to me. And the first thing that popped into my head, I didn't say it, but I was going to ask him what insolent meant because I didn't know, which probably would have angered him. And, he does have a fantastic vocabulary. Oh, he's insane. I yeah. love it. And, and uh, then he just stared at me and backed out and left. And I, and I looked at everybody. I go, what the fuck was that? I never even met the guy. So, so then I break down the kit and I'm walking backstage and uh, he was walking towards me. And I had heard his whole grumpiness was because he didn't get his, uh, yeah, his green, his green smoke. So yeah. he's a little cranky. And then he, he smiles ear to ear and he sticks his hand out and he goes, Dave Roth, nice to meet you. And I go, McGee, nice to meet you too. And that oh was it. Oh my God. And the whole rest of the summer was cool, you know, it, but that's, I think that's my chapter in the, uh, the funniest moment. Yeah. I've done stupid stuff. Well, you're the practical <laughs> joke guy. Like I know, speaking of like the in-ears and stuff, that there's a show happening during the show as well. Uh, well we, and bands we, yeah. are famous for it, especially picking on the opening act on the last night of a tour, that there's a lot of practical jokes going on, that you're talking into each other's ears during the show, that there's a whole other thing happening that yeah. we in the crowd just don't get to see. Yeah, no, especially with Steven's mix. Like back when he would always want me to, uh, I'd have a, a, a in-ear pack that I could flip between Joey's mix and Steven's mix. Steven's mix I called air traffic control because you're getting monitor guys talking to him, John Bianelli. Yeah. Uh, John, John runs the teleprompters. He's been with Aerosmith the longest 30 something years. And he has a little iPad that has a lot of funny drops in it. <laughs> like a lot of Larry David stuff, three stooges. Oh my so God. So you'll just, so I would listen and just laugh. You'd hear certain. He's playing that in Steven Tyler's ears during the show. Yeah. In between verses. And, and, <laughs> but then I, then Steven wanted me to tell him jokes during the show. So I had my, they gave me a little one foot mic stand and tied some scarves on it. <laughs> and I had my own little mic stand and I used to have to tell him, like fun, you remember, you've, we've all heard of like the, uh, I, I call them fake, but the, like the sex moves, like the angry dragon yeah. and the jelly. Yeah. You know, he loved the those. The Eiffel Tower yeah, and all so, that stuff. Yeah. So I would try to have to find a way to crowbar them in so he could laugh, you know. Oh and my God. It wasn't fun because it's, you know, I didn't want to screw up the show, but he, he liked it. He made me do it. So Well, he's, he wants years. you to keep it light. Oh yeah. But, you know. But when your hair, hair is mixed, he just... You know, he said in the past he feels lonely out there, even though everybody's there to see him sing. Right. You know, and everybody's, you know, so it's just a feeling you get. It's probably like a nerve thing, I would imagine. Well, and I, I think it's overwhelming. <clears throat> I think a lot of artists, you know, stand-up comedians, too, are incredibly sensitive. Yeah. And a lot of them are introverted, believe it or not. Yeah. And then I see it all the time when bands come into a radio station and they get in front of the mic and they don't know what to say. And it's like, but you're in front of a microphone on stage all night. And they're like, yeah, but that it's, it's like, there's so many people. It's like, it doesn't look real. This is like a one-on-one -on -one thing and you don't know who's listening. And because yeah. there's people listening with the radios on all over the place. But a lot of creatives are very sensitive and come from backgrounds where they're trying to find 
a way to channel pain and emotion and they end up writing great songs from it yeah but then they end up on stage in front of thirty thousand people you can't yeah you don't have a good good stage rap sometimes yeah like now all of a sudden all these people are looking at you and it's like you end up in a place you know that you never really thought you'd end up that's probably the cheap trick dynamic because rick does most of the talking yeah and you know and robin robin's got the best warm-up for any vocal singer i've ever seen he would do a shot of Jack and scream like three or four times. <laughs> and that was it. And he and he's an amazing singer. Oh, he's unbelievable. Yeah. And those guys, they opened up a lot for Aerosmith. Yeah. So Fantastic band. Oh, yeah. The greatest. I wish Kid, they, they'd got their do more, you know. Kid Rock, when he inducted them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, said something, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but basically every rock band thinks they're great live, and then they see Cheap Trick. Yeah. Because yeah. they're just that good live. They're a band that... You know the the Budokan record is is what kind of broke them, and it was yeah. somehow they were able to manage to capture their magic live on an album, which is rare. Yep, and, and Bunny was one of my favorite drummers to watch. Oh yeah, because that, he's the definition of a fluid movement drummer. Yeah, you know, and once he was out of the band, I didn't have a you know much of a desire to see him as much. Yeah, but they still got amazing music. I had Rick Nielsen on the podcast, and um, he and I were on Zoom, so I could see him. And he's a guy that like the the energy you could power the world like a nuclear power plant if you could find a way to bottle Rick Nielsen. Oh yeah, he's... he just fidgets. He had a guitar with him, and he was just playing the whole time. He wouldn't sit still. He's telling me about how Paul McCartney owes him money for a <laughs> guitar he sold him, and oh, oh wow. he told me all these crazy stories talking about like being able to drop names. He knows everybody. Oh yeah, he's he's a legend, and he. I remember once talking to him. Uh, I was in front of his dressing room backstage. We were talking about something, and uh, he goes, "Everybody in this band." He goes, "He goes, we all share a dressing room, you know." But he goes, "Whoever leaves the dressing room, everybody else talks about that person." He goes, <laughs> "So I never leave the dressing room till we're going on stage." So I always remembered that line from Rick. He's he's funny. Oh, really, yeah. really funny. Guy. He's great, and, and yeah. it's. It's tough seeing all these older bands. There's been so many losses across the board. We're but. not ready for what is going to happen in the next five years. And I'm not uh, even trying to be pessimistic. Yeah. It's just there is a whole generation of rock royalty that just, we're just going to lose them. I think people kind of felt it, obviously, with Neil Peart when he passed away. Yeah. And then Eddie Van Halen because he was young. Yeah. You know, but it's like musicians seem to either die way before they should. Or you get a guy like Keith Richards or, you know, Mick Jagger or Ozzy or guys that are just that we take for granted that we still got a Paul yeah. McCartney and Ringo. It's like oh, yeah. we're not ready to lose these guys. I know I'm emotionally not. I mean, we no, no. losing Cornell, I think, out of all of them, you know, you talk about Scott Weiland and all of those guys. Cornell, I think I had spent the most time with, done the most interviews with. And that one, because he had been so candid, you know, with his yeah. mental health struggles and, you know, that that I think everybody thought he was going to be one of the grunge guys that kind of made it yeah. out. And we're not ready to lose the guys we're getting ready to lose. We're just not. No, no. It's, it's, it's a tough part of life, you know. Yeah. Watching the legends one by one. Yeah. It is sad, you know. I mean, we do get the music, which is, 
such a gift that you yeah. can leave behind a legacy like that. But we have for a long time taken for granted the longevity of these guys' careers and their ability to be able to tour, even though they don't move as fast or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you look at a guy like Steven Tyler, he still holds it down live, oh, man. Yeah. He's still one of the best vocalists out there yeah, at was, his age. He was singing great in Vegas. Yeah. I mean, because I listen to it, you know, in my yeah. mix, so he, he, he's amazing. The one... You know, in all my years of touring, I've only bought tickets twice. I don't really go to a lot of shows. Yeah. Uh, when I'm home, I'm a homebody. You know, I hang out with Dana's kid. Yeah. I mean, I got him a, a drum kit. <laughs> he's on a second kit because the first one he kind of destroyed. <laughs> but in just the year he's had it, it's fun to, you know, that's kind of, I miss seeing the little guy when I'm on the road now. Cause right. Because I, I never got married. Yeah. You know, I, I lost but my parents in the last four years, both oh. of them. So, you know, when you don't have a, a family at home, you kind of adopt, adopt, you become uncle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like growing up, I was, you know, I was never, never really wanted kids, you know, but, but then when you like Dana and Nicole told me they're pregnant, I'm like, well, I'm not coming over ever again. <laughs> I go, I'm, and the next thing I know, I'm the godfather. I'm changing diapers. Yep. Elbow I'm, deep in poop, yeah, baby. I'm, I'm babysitting. I go, what, what is this? What happened to me? You know, now that's the stuff I, I look forward to doing and, you know, just just having fun, you know. Yeah. Baby, I babysit. They go out, They he has a gig, I'll watch the kids. You've been a babysitter for decades. They were just adult babies. Yes, yes. And so you, you've you got the skill set. I was just wiping less asses as, as the adults, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I'm so glad that you came to do this. Oh, yeah, me too. I've, I've had a blast. Hopefully, uh, I don't know, people will like listening you know yeah they will it, because you've got the stories of the the artists they love but from a completely different perspective and it's part of the show that we don't get to see you know yeah. the the you're kind of back there so the next time you go to a show and you're watching the drummer know that there's a guy maybe mcgee maybe not yeah. <laughs> that's literally sitting right behind the drummer that's that guy just in case yeah something goes wrong yeah it depends most drummers i sit on the uh, upstage left shoulder you know the hi-hat side yeah so you can kind of see them that's the best best view for me yeah you're like the catcher on a baseball team you got the best view it is it is and oh but I, well, what i was going back to though i'd only bought tickets twice oh yeah in 27 years now to see and you'd you could probably have a million guesses and not guess who i bought tickets to see I'm, oh man. It's, it's. I'm assuming that they're not even rock related, right? No. Yeah. Ton of hits. Ton of a hits. Canadian. Celine Dion? No, no. He's, he's 83 years old now. Oh man. I'll give you a hint. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. No, Gordon Lightfoot. Oh, okay. So I, so I love Gordon and, and me, I got me, Gary, Dane and Nicole. We went a few years ago. And then I bought tickets this year. I bought a single seat. And two days before I got called, they needed an emergency drum tech fill-in. So my ticket, I couldn't go see him. <laughs> and I was so pissed. I'm, that was 160 bucks. I'm not, yeah. not mad about the money. I was like, oh, that's the one thing I enjoy. Yeah. Going to, going, he's not going to be around much longer. Yeah. But I don't know. He's on my Mount Rushmore of uh, singer-songwriters. I think back to the shows that I worked as a tech before people had smartphones in their pocket where you could take pictures. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I did lights for B.B. King once at a oh, college. Wow. And it's like, it's fucking B.B. King. And I don't have any pictures. 
Yeah. I ran lights for Tito Puente. Oh, wow. Um, George, uh, George Clinton in the Parliament Funkadelic. Like, all these crazy... And I was like, what am I doing here? I know. That's but those cool are memories, the, though. Yeah, those are the stories that, like... You just kind of wake up and go like, where the hell did this all come from? Mm -hmm. I just wish I had more pictures from that era. Yeah. Because what we didn't have cameras with us all the time. And a lot of the best stuff isn't documented. Yeah, because you know? you're working. Yeah, but he, like uh, in 2018, I, I got lucky. I went out on Ringo. Uh, <sighs> star is, I was kind of the cop in the teleprompter guy. And, you know, I would help out Jeff, who's Ringo's tech, a little bit. Yeah. But but Jeff was the sole drum tech for both kits. But uh, and I remember sitting in catering once at a table, Lukather, uh, some, um, another couple of crew guys, and, you know, had a plate of meat and potatoes on the thing. And Ringo is a, a diehard vegetarian. Yeah. And I, I never really talked to him much. I met him the first day. That was it. And, uh, and he slides in and basically presses right up against me at catering. Now, I start getting a little flustered. I mean, this is a beetle. Yeah. And it, I, I don't really get shell-shocked at celebrities If you're going to get starstruck by anybody, yeah. it's a beetle. Yeah, so he starts uh, talking to me about that the uh, rapper Drake. And yeah. I, I'm not a fan, but he said his son was talking to him about Drake and this and that, and, and he's still touching me, like leaning on me the whole way, and I've kind of pushed my <laughs> plate away when he wasn't looking. <laughs> You know, I didn't want him to see it, but so that was like, you know, you, you're like, this guy's a beetle and you're sitting here bumping shoulders talking yeah. about a rapper, you know? Yeah. I don't know. So that was kind of a surreal moment for me that I, I'll never forget. That's my, that's on my Rushmore. Like there's only two Beatles left. I've never met a Beatle, seen him in concert, obviously, but to get to interview a Beatle to me would be a career highlight because. Oh Yeah. Like I said, they're the best. They're the best, and they're not getting any younger. And there's only two of them left. I know. And, and Paul, I don't know. Paul does obviously bigger numbers than Ringo, but still, then th that Ringo tour, you know, for the, it was a short run for a month, but it was incredible because oh. you know the premise. You got an all-star band. Yeah. And my favorite singer of the night was Colin Hay from Men at Work. I mean, he, you know, <laughs> who can it be now? Yeah. I mean that that. His voice sounds just as amazing as it did on an album. Yep. So, and you got the Toto stuff, you oh. know, and, and Journey. But now Edgar Winter's in the band. I just interviewed him on the show a couple months ago. Oh, okay. And talked on Zoom, and all of a sudden he just pops up, and it's Edgar Winter. And I was like, oh, and he was in his home studio. He was like, welcome to Winterland. And, like, <laughs> it was so cool. Oh, yeah, another legend, you know. And he was talking about all of the people that he got on this record, Brother Johnny, and he's dropping names like Ringo and Joe Walsh and like all of these guys. And it was just like, oh my. And did you know they're brothers-in-law? Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. But he's like, yeah, Joe Walsh and Ringo's wives are yeah, sisters. And yeah. so it's like, can you imagine like those Christmases or whatever? It's like, what? I know. The last show we did at the uh, Hollywood Bowl, uh, they sat, you know, Joe next to me. Uh, it, it teleprompter world because, he, you know, the Hollywood Bowl, have you ever been there? No. It's a, it's, a, it's a famous venue. Yeah, it's but. famous, but, well, you know, it wasn't much for on-stage seating. But Yeah. So he sat right next to me. I opened. He couldn't get his sport bottle of water open, so I opened it for <laughs> him. And, but, you know, you see these people, and it just they're just normal people for the most part. Yeah. And they appreciate somebody who's not, you know, going to grovel over them. Yeah. You treat me with respect, I'll treat you with respect. Yep. 
you know, and, and that's how it goes in life. Kind of hard to do with a guy is at the level of Ringo or McCartney, oh, yeah. though. That's like, different. <laughs> like, even musicians are nerding out over those guys. Oh, yeah, that goes out the window. Yeah. <laughs> Which has got to be really weird when literally no one can treat you normal. I know. and, and But they like to be treated normal. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, that's one of my, I got a lot of different cool mementos through, you know, through the years of, you know, I got hundreds and hundreds of drumsticks from different drummers and signed stuff. But, you know, two of the coolest things I have is Ringo's drumsticks from the night we played Boston. So I got his sticks from that night and I have something I know nobody on the planet has. <laughs> oh God. It's, it's from Peter Chris. Uh, when, on the last Aerosmith Kiss tour, he would always come down. We had a spinning stage with a tunnel in the middle. Yeah. So all our tech work boxes were inside the tunnel. So I would let Peter's tech use my world. And Peter, we had a seat for him. He'd come down during the bass solo and have his Gatorade, you know, and he would take a little bit of oxygen. And so I have his oxygen mask bag. <laughs> that has got a, a little bit of the white grease paint. He, he signed the bag and, uh, so I know there's not one of those out there. Nope. So I, I got it locked up in my gun safe. That's like <laughs> like having having the, the little kid harmonica yeah. from Steven Tyler. Like it's those weird little mementos. Yeah. You know it's the only thing on the planet. Yeah. That nobody has. And, yeah. And, but then I'm thinking, now I'm at this age where I got so much stuff and I'm like, what am I gonna do with all this stuff? You I know. know. So I don't know. Yeah, like, you got plenty of time to figure it out. Well, you hope. You know, yeah. you just never know. Yeah, you know, you never know. But I was telling Dana's kid the other day. I go when I, I go when I go to heaven. I go, you can have all this stuff. And he goes, can I have it now? <laughs> I'm like, no, you got to wait. Wait till I'm floating up there. <laughs> oh my God, kids do say the funniest things for uh, sure. It is. That's a funny con. That TV show is great, but yep. it's the truth. No, it's absolutely the stuff that comes the out of their mouths is. It kills you. <laughs> so what's next? Where where are you going next? Well, I'm working on a, a few things. Um, you know, hopefully in February and March, I got something lined up. Uh, still waiting to cement it. Yeah. And, you know, just trying to piece some stuff together. I'm not sure when Aerosmith is going to do something again. Yeah. You know, Joe's got Hollywood vampires in June and July. Yep. So that's out. So we'll just kind of wait and see what happens. Sometimes when I'm home, I work with my buddy Brian. As a uh, he owns an excavation landscaping company, so being a laborer at 52 isn't ideal. But yeah, I appreciate him, you know, giving me the opportunity to work and make some money and yeah, keep yourself busy yeah. while you're yeah. And and so I I do that sometimes. Not it in the, is a, not it in is the winter a, though. It's a very <laughs> strange lifestyle to like be all or nothing. We're either out on the road immersed in work or you're home doing nothing. Yeah, exactly. And I do, when I'm home, I do a lot of stuff for people. You know, like I said, the babysitting or picking, yeah. picking them up from school or, or doing this for somebody. I, I like to kind of stay busy, but there's also days where I kind of like, well, I'm going to watch movies for eight hours and not, not? Do a, not do a thing, especially when it's two degrees out. Coming and doing your friend's podcast, you know. Oh, I know. I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> this is fun. Yeah, it's not bad. Right? You should do a drum tech podcast. Yeah, I'd probably get four viewers. No, I think it would be hilarious, and I bet you'd get a lot more people listening than you think. The yeah. Frank Scambalone episode of the podcast is one of my most listened to episodes. And I told Frank that, and he was like, why? And I'm like, because you've got stories no one else has. I know. When you told me he had done that, I, I said, he's the funniest guy ever. And you said it wasn't even about that. 
It was no. about, it was about, but but he is on the road. Oh, so funny! That kid, he 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 made me laugh hot. He says the same thing about me. Apparently, <laughs> he goes, he says I'm the funniest guy he's toured with. I say he's the funniest, but maybe I got to get the both of you guys in here together. Well, yeah, that would be fun. That would be hilarious. <laughs> he, I haven't seen him in a while though. But he's I know always he's working down in Rhode Island still, or did he move? No, I think he's in Mass now. Oh, is he in Mass? Yeah, but he's always out on the road. I know. He stays. There's, there's certain guys that just stay real busy. Yeah. You know, drum guitar techs tend to stay more busy because there's often multiple guitarists in bands. Right. You only get the one one drum guy. Yeah. So it's kind of harder to get gigs sometimes. Yeah. So you just do what you can. You survive. Save money. I don't have much of a future, so I always say... My dream is to get hit by lightning on stage at age 72 and, and just drop me, smother my ashes, bury me in a kick drum, and I'll be all set. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had time off to come and hang out with me today. So. Yeah, me too. I'm glad. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for coming. You got to come back. I'll let you know what the feedback is on the show. All right. I guarantee you'll be surprised by what the audience has to say. All right. Well, I hope so. There he is, the polar bear himself, McGee, John McGarry. You'll never watch a drummer the same way again. And the next time you see Aerosmith, you'll be wondering what the hell is going on in Steven Tyler's ears. You definitely want to check out the corresponding playlist for this week's episode. It's filled with all the artists that McGee has worked with and all the artists we talked about in this interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. The Situation Report gives you all of your rock news, entertainment updates, and music headlines, and it's all in five minutes. Plus, you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. Hang out with me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern for my video show on my official Facebook page, Cocktails in the War Room. And you can always listen to the Mistress Carrie radio show. Start your 2023 off right and fashionably with all of the gear in the Mistress Carrie online shop. Get the details on all that and more online at mistresscarrie.com. And if you want details on how to sponsor the Mistress Carrie podcast, just click the message the studio link. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.